0: He he admitted to me, who did that he killed the guy. Michael did, you
1: know? That was the voice of Richard England, a convicted felon who was a suspect in the murder of a Daytona Beach Planning Board member 17 years ago. He tried to pin it on his accomplice, but in the end, he was the one sent to death row. That story is coming up. On Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the pending resentencing of Paul Price, who nearly four decades ago, while still a juvenile, slashed and stabbed a 17-year-old girl to death inside a Daytona Beach apartment. He originally received a life sentence, but a judge will soon decide whether to reduce it. A hearing was held Thursday. My guest for that segment will be Daytona Beach News Journal justice reporter Frank Fernandez. Later, I'll discuss the 2001 slang of Howard Weatherall well-known civic leader from one of Daytona Beach's pioneer families. He was bludgeoned in his home with a fire poker, and two men eventually were convicted in that slaying. One of those men, Robert England, received a death sentence. The other, Michael Douglas Jackson, who was Wetherwood's companion, pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and is serving life in prison. During that segment, you'll hear from former Daytona Beach Mayor, Larry Kelly. Coming up, the story of the imprisoned teenage killer trying to be free again.
0: How's that? She started screaming.
1: I'm day. i That was Paul Price, telling the court he didn't know why he stabbed Ellen Clancy inside her home nearly 40 years ago. Price is now 56 years old. He's balding. What hair he has left is gray, and he has spent more than 70% of his life behind bars. He was convicted in the first-degree murder of 17-year-old Ellen Clancy, who was slaughtered with a knife on May 23, 1979, inside a riverfront apartment she shared with her mother on South Halifax Avenue in Daytona Beach. Clancy was preparing to graduate from high school and then enroll at Florida State University. Her matriculation date was less than three months away. Price, who was 17 years old when he killed Clancy, took the stand Thursday in his own defense. He admitted murdering Clancy, but also requested a more lenient sentence. Price has been incarcerated since the date of the killing itself. That's a total of 39 years, one month, and two days. Price testified that he had driven to Clancy's apartment to find out whether she could talk him out of taking his own life. While there, he was overcome with the urge to take her life instead. Price's story was challenged by prosecutor Heather Trigones, who during cross-examination asked Price whether he had wanted to have sex with the victim. He said he did not even think about sex at the time. Price insisted he had suicide on his mind that day and not sex. Tregones, however, told the judge that Price had partially undressed Clancy after killing her, going so far as to cut out the crotch area of her shorts and underwear and lifting up her shirt. Price also spread the victim's legs after he killed her. While Clancy's life seemed to be going in an upward trajectory, Price's life was sinking. A motorcycle crash left him with brain damage. He had difficulty remembering things, and that handicap made holding down a job difficult. The murder itself was grisly. Price admitted on the stand he had punched Clancy several times during the struggle, Dragone said Clancy had fought hard to save her life. At one point, she knocked off her attacker's glasses and bit him on the finger. In all, four knives were used during the attack. One was left near the body, and two were on the kitchen counter. Another knife broke during the attack and was found under Clancy's shoulder. Here is News Journal justice reporter Frank Fernandez telling me how Price described his feelings after he left Clancy's apartment that day. He was very dramatic in uh, his testimony. Like at one point he raised his
2: hands and said, you know, there's when I got back to my home in Ormond Beach, I looked at my hands and I thought there was uh, I saw her blood on it on my hands. And he raised his hands, which were handcuffed and he raised his hands in court and uh
1: that was dramatic. Another dramatic moment that came during the hearing was when Tragones confronted Price about his allegation that he was only thinking about committing suicide and not having sex with Clancy. The evidence, she said, suggested otherwise. Frank also told me it was jarring to hear Price describe in a soft, monotone voice what he did to the victim. Chilling moment, I thought, was
2: when the prosecutor asked him, you stabbed her to keep her quiet. And he said, in a cool, cold, kind of matter-of-fact way, no, I slit her throat to keep her quiet. It was like a totally different person in that sense. I mean, in the morning, you got this impression that you know, this guy uh, is, is contrite and maybe he just kind of lost his mind and from the motorcycle accident and something went horribly wrong. In the afternoon, you got this sense of this cold-blooded, sexually-driven murder.
1: In November 1980, Price was sentenced to life. At the time, Florida sentenced juvenile murder offenders to death, and the state attorney's office did pursue a death sentence for Price, but jurors decided to recommend life. Following a U.S. Supreme Court ruling six years ago, Florida must resentence all juvenile offenders who were sentenced to life. The court ruled that mandatory life sentences without parole for juveniles violates the Eighth Amendment's bar against cruel and unusual punishment. The judge in this case has flexibility. Price could be sentenced to life in prison. Or he could get 39 years. If the judge chose the latter, Price could be credited for time served and released. Price also is eligible for parole on June 4, 2022. His case still needs to go before the state's parole commission. Another twist in this story is that Price's original defense attorney was Dan Warren who was assisted by his daughter, Christine Warren. On Thursday, Price was being represented by Ray Warren, the son of the late Dan Warren and brother to Christine Warren. The prosecutor's only witness Thursday was Clancy's brother, Justin Mostert, of Portsmouth, Rhode Island. He is now 61 years old. Mostert asked that Price remain in prison for the rest of his life. He called the murder, quote, vicious and sexually oriented. He added that the murder scene was poised to be graphic, vulgar, and sexually aggressive. Mostert added, quote, it was extremely hurtful. It was extremely shocking. Attorneys were given 10 days to submit additional information to the judge before she issues her sentence. Coming up. The story of the twisted murder of a civic servant and a member of a very well known and politically active family.
3: Oh, I think if you mention Weatherall anywhere in the state of Florida, people would recognize the Weatherall name.
1: Howard Weatherall's family tree had a lot of branches, and they stretched far. He was fifth generation of a very powerful family and Daytona Beach. Weatherall had a famous cousin, uncle, and father. He also was well-known in and around Volusia County. He ran for office. He was politically active. He was a banker. He was a shopping center coordinator. He was the treasurer of a committee that oversaw the upkeep of one of Daytona's most historic cemeteries. His list of accomplishments was long. A big party was scheduled to be thrown by the city of Daytona Beach on July 3, 2001, and he was expected to be there. The man, who friends called Cooter, was on the city's planning board. Everyone on that board was invited to the boardwalk the day before Independence Day to celebrate the opening of a new ride and help kick off the Pepsi 400, the second of two NASCAR races that the city hosts per year. The 71-year-old Wetherill didn't make it to the party. Days earlier, he had been bludgeoned inside his riverfront condo with a fire iron. Weatherall's car was gone. So was his credit card. Nine days of newspapers had piled up in front of his door. Neighbors were concerned. On July 2, 2001, Wetherill's car had been involved in a hit and run crash near Panama City. Troopers from the Florida Highway Patrol wanted to speak to the owner of the vehicle. So Daytona Beach police came over to Wetherill's condo. When they came inside, they were nearly knocked out by the stench. They also found blood on the carpet. Wetherill's body was found on the bathroom floor. The word pervert had been written in black magic marker on one of the photos in his home. Some profanity was written on another photo. Some of his belongings were missing, including his collection of antique guns. Meanwhile, a canine unit with the Walton County Sheriff's Office followed a trail from Wetherill's stolen mercury to a teenager who was living in a tent along the Choctawatchee River. Michael Douglas Jackson, who was 18 years old at the time, was arrested on a charge of grand theft auto. Eventually, he was transported to Volusia County and charged with murder. Jackson was the first person charged in Wetherill's death, but he wouldn't be the last. Howard Cooter Weatherall was born in 1929 in Ormond Beach and raised in Daytona Beach, graduating from Seabreeze High School and later Florida State University. He was the son of Carl Weatherall, a veteran of both World War I, during which he served in the U.S. Army, and World War II, during which he served in the U.S. Navy. Carl was an electrical contractor and was the chief building inspector for both the city of Daytona Beach and Volusia County. He lived to be 98. He was one of many Wetherills who went on to serve their community in a big way. Perhaps the most famous Wetherill was T.K. Wetherill, Cooter's cousin. Here again is Larry Kelly.
3: Weatherall family is uh, not just famous in Daytona Beach and Volusia County, but it's famous throughout the state of Florida. T.K., uh, I knew him when he was vice president at Daytona State College, and then he ran for the House of Representatives, uh, became Speaker of the House, and then became president of Florida State University. So the Weatherall name is a famous name in the state of Florida.
1: The Student Services and Administration building at Daytona State College is named after T.K. Weatherall. Across the street from that building is where I get my coffee every morning. T.K. Weatherall's father, Cooter's uncle, was a patriarch with a lot of influence. Sort of like the Joe Kennedy of Daytona.
3: TK's father, Tom Weatherall, was absolutely a pillar in the community. He was manager of uh, the Sears building, which was downtown Daytona Beach, now the closed County building. But uh, the Weatherall family, uh, his dad used to put my campaign signs together, Tom.
1: Cooter Weatherall made his own path. In 1958, at 28 years old, He was appointed first Federal Saving and Loan Association's Director of Community Relations. Before then, he had worked for a time in Chicago where he honed his public relations skills. In 1966, he was chosen as the Democratic State Executive Committeeman. By 1978, he had also worked extensively in real estate, like his famous uncle before him. Weatherall's pursuit of elected office didn't go as well as he had hoped. In 1978, he ran for Volusia County appraiser, but lost. In 1991, he applied to fill the vacant clerk of the circuit court seat, but the governor chose someone else. In 1992, he applied for the state's Public Service Commission, which regulated public utility costs. Again, he was passed over. Finally, in 1999, he was appointed to the Daytona Beach Planning Board. While serving on the board, he supported the Magdalene House, a center in Daytona dedicated to rehabilitating prostitutes. He was still serving on the planning board when he was killed. Wetherill also had served as a deacon at First Presbyterian Church on Grandview Avenue in Beachside. His wife, Diana, had died in 1996. The pair raised three children. Weatherall was known to be personable, kind, well-read, active, and a sharp dresser. He also had a secret, probably an open secret to some. He was attracted to men, particularly young men. Michael Douglas Jackson, that 18-year-old who was arrested in the panhandle with Weatherall's car turned out to be Wetherill's lover. Jackson described him as his sugar daddy. I talked to a member of Wetherill's church last week. She declined to participate in this podcast. She told me that she thought Wetherill was a decent man, but suggested that his lifestyle may have rubbed certain churchgoers the wrong way. I left messages with T.K. Wetherill, who still maintains an emeritus status at Florida State. He did not return those messages. Jackson remained the only person jailed in the Wetherill slaying until November 2003. It was then that a grand jury indicted Richard England on a first-degree murder charge. All along, detectives had set their sights on England. Just a few months after the murder, England was interviewed by state attorney's office investigator Sean McGuire. And Daytona Beach police detective... Debbie Session. England was accompanied by his attorney during the interview. He insisted he had nothing to do with Wetherill's slang. He said he hardly knew Jackson, but he went into Wetherill's condo and watched Jackson come up and down the stairs. At one point, he was carrying a bag with him. England said Jackson was acting suspicious.
0: He's got a bag in his hand. okay? Which, uh? I thought was dirty clothes and what appeared to be some kind of a a rod, curtain rod or some kind of a rod in the bag. And he brought that down the stairs and he approached me with it right there in the kitchen. I asked him what it was, like, nothing, don't worry about it. Like, sat it down. He's like, "Uh, I took care of that. And I was like, what are you talking about? And uh, he started insinuating that he did something to his uncle. So I said,
1: oh boy. After they left the condo, according to England, Jackson stayed with England and his girlfriend. But during the middle of the night, Jackson started getting antsy. So I calling the other room, like,
0: what's up? He's like, man, you gotta get me out of here. I was like, what do you mean? You he's like, you gotta help me out, you gotta get me out of
1: here. Exasperated with Jackson's behavior, England and his girlfriend agreed to drive Jackson to a convenience store in Titusville
0: dropped them off there and uh that was it we took off we come back and i haven't seen them since okay you have not seen them since i had not seen them since that from that point there never that was it that was the last time i seen them that was it
1: that's not the story others told investigators lots of items were removed from wetherill's home There were silver platters, antique flint lock guns, jewelry, and other knickknacks. A convicted drug trafficker by the name of Ronaldo Delion told detectives and later jurors that England traded some of Wetherill's items for drugs. He also said England was with Jackson during the transaction. Here is Investigator McGuire talking to England about some of Leon's statements to him.
0: Okay. The statement is that if you two were together when when they when you brought the stolen stuff over to the apartment okay. in in Orlando. I no, I, I. Why would why I would Reynaldo know. lie to me? I don't have no idea why why I would be brought up in that. Now if he did that by himself, Reynaldo okay. just did that all by himself. No, I mean, if with Mike no, he was all. that. I don't know why he would say that with me. I don't know why he would say that about me. You know, because I never I never. I never was involved in any kind of weapon or any type of merchandise that was in that house I was not involved with. I didn't have many times. That was the last time I seen him. You know, there's no, there's no way it possible to that you can me that to me. Even, that was the last time I seen him besides from when I heard that he got arrested.
1: McGuire, as you can hear. Doesn't let England off the hook.
0: Right. Although I don't think he has any reason to lie and pin this on you because you're the one he right. knows. He says right. he couldn't even pick, he couldn't even pick Michael out of a lineup. So I'm having a hard time with this story since you're the only one he knows out of the two. Yeah. He, he knows. He knows he, Mike. Yeah. He met him that time. He met him that time. He yeah. said one time he met him, and that was the time you showed up together. Yeah.
1: Jackson and England both had histories of violence. Jackson, who was born in Newport News, Virginia, nearly killed a former lover 11 months before he killed Wetherill. According to a police report, Jackson attacked James Beeman with a metal pipe. The two were a couple, but Beeman broke up with him and evicted him from his apartment. He told police he had grown tired of Jackson's drinking and carousing. The pair lived together only for about three months. During the night of July 20, 2000, Beeman heard a knock on his door and answered it. He never got a clear sight of his attacker, but he testified on the stand that he touched his attacker's face and arm while trying to fend off the attack. That was how he knew for sure that Jackson was the person beating him. Beeman was severely injured and he needed emergency brain surgery doctors saved his life. Beeman also told police that he suspected he was in his apartment alone and bleeding for up to 48 hours before he found the strength to crawl to a phone and call for an ambulance. Jackson was charged with attempted murder in that beating. By comparison, Jackson's accomplice in the Weatherall case actually did kill someone and served time for manslaughter. At 15 years old, England beat a 50-year-old man to death with a motorcycle muffler. The victim in that case also was gay. England served 11 years in prison for that slaying, which occurred in 1987 in New Smyrna Beach, located about 15 miles south of Daytona. Jackson and England communicated after Jackson was arrested. McGuire was convinced the two had orchestrated a burglary involving murder for the sake of buying drugs. While Jackson was in custody, the two of them had phone conversations. Here is England trying to downplay one of those conversations to McGuire, who was getting increasingly angry at England, who he suspected was telling him bald-faced lies.
0: Did you talk to him yesterday? I talked to him two days ago. Two days ago? Yeah. So you know I talked to him, right? Yeah. Okay. I'm aware of it, but he never went into detail what we said. Or really? On that matter. So, what you talked about, the weather? Well, not the weather, but I mean. You we didn't talk about, about what we talked about. No. I mean, you're, you're looking well, at people for the prison been, rest of your life, and you didn't ask to him. To what I know we talked about. about. I I mean, <laughs> we talk. I mean, I have.
1: Here is another fact that came up later during trial. When Jackson was caught with Wetherill's car, he actually had been in a hit-and-run with an ambulance. Also, he wasn't alone in the car. His passenger was Richard England. Jackson actually had tried hard to thwart the state's attempts to try England. Soon before the trial, Jackson sent a letter to England's attorney claiming he alone was responsible for Wetherill's murder. The letter stated, quote, My objective is to set your client, Rich, free. I am the one who is guilty, not him. I've had for the most part three years to think it over. I cannot allow Rich to be put on death row waiting to be executed or serve life in prison for something he did not do. Jackson's efforts didn't work. The trial went forward in May 2004. Jurors learned just how sloppy England was when he burglarized Weatherall and killed him. He left a cigarette butt in the condo with his saliva on it. The writings on the pictures in the condo matched England's handwriting. Additionally, phone records show that someone from inside Weatherall's home made several phone calls. England had called some of his friends. Jurors also learned that the murder weapon used to kill Weatherall was a fire iron, or a fireplace poker. England divulged that information to Ronaldo de Leon, and he was among the witnesses called to the stand for the state. De Leon told jurors that England confessed to him that he killed Weatherall the same way he did the first one, that is his first victim, from 14 years earlier. Later during the trial, jurors also learned that Wetherill died from a neck fracture, which was caused by repeated blows to the head with a fire iron. His hands also were injured when he tried to fend off the blows. For up to four minutes, Weatherall was beaten, according to the medical examiner who testified at the trial. The prosecution also argued that England stripped naked before he killed Weatherall, because he didn't want to get blood on his clothes. He even took a shower with the corpse after the killing. Getting naked before committing murder was England's unique M.O. When he killed his victim in 1987 with a muffler, he got naked for that, too. The trial wasn't going well for England, so he decided to be disruptive more than once. While McGuire was testifying, England jumped to his feet and yelled that he was being framed. He kept yelling in court. He kept communicating with his girlfriend after he was told to stop. He kept defying the judge. It got so bad that at one point England sat at the defense table with duct tape across his mouth. Circuit Judge James Foxman had warned him numerous times to keep quiet, but England refused. As a result, Foxman gagged him. Such a move by a judge is very rare. Here is Frank Fernandez talking to me about that. And the fact that the judge putting masking tape around his uh, mouth
2: was a pretty uh, kind of uh, unusual development. I've never seen that done before.
1: You've never heard of anything like that happening? I've never Not, heard of it. Yeah, it's uh, pretty un- unusual. Opinions from the legal community were mixed but most of them said Judge Foxman had no other choice considering how many times he had warned the defendant against interrupting the trial. It didn't have any impact on England's appeal. It was denied. After the trial, Jackson was sentenced to life in prison. He is serving that sentence at Zephyrhills Correctional Institution in Pasco County, located 30 miles northwest of Tampa. Jurors in England's trial only voted 8 to 4 for death, which means he could request that his death sentence be overturned. A Supreme Court ruling in 2016 stated that murder defendants can only be sentenced to death if jurors are unanimous with their recommendations. England, at least for the time being, is trying a different tactic to get off death row. On Monday... He was scheduled to appear in a Volusia County courtroom for a motion hearing. England, who still maintains his innocence all these years, alleged that the grand jury, when it indicted him, considered perjured testimony before issuing that indictment for first-degree murder. A judge will listen to arguments and make a ruling, but the judge is under no specific timetable to submit that ruling. Thank you for listening. Next week, I will discuss the cold case murder of Brian Sweat, who was randomly killed in front of his home in Gainesville. The murder happened in broad daylight, and Sweat didn't appear as though he was the target of any burglary or robbery. Nothing in his house went missing. Sweat's home was located on a cul-de-sac but it was also in proximity to a row of seedy motels. The Gainesville Police Department is still investigating the case. Join us again next week for that story. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer, or email him at tony.holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sutton Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.